Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Sean Johnson, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Uh, I think this is an interview that we've been looking forward to for a long time. And, uh, you know, we're just going through the manifold ranks right now. I love it. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, enjoyed the first the first two. So, yeah, hopefully this isn't completely duplicative. But um... people were saying, you know, Dan Knight, he might be he's the Caesar salad to your filet mignon. You know, you're the you're the main mm. course, basically. Dan was a good tee up guy. And, uh, you know, you're the closer coming in. So I think that's what people are kind of, that's their expectations. It's been sitting on the hotline though for like a long time. So <laughs> I think it, uh, the waiter got distracted and uh, <laughs> yeah. so it's, that's not a, degraded a little bit. It's been dry aging. That's it. That's yeah, all that's going go. on here. It's there the 65 go. day dry age from there when the go. podcast started. So that's, that's, awesome. that's how we're, that's how we're tying this in. No, it's um, been cool to watch. It's been cool to watch, uh, watch you build this up. It's been, it's been fun. So yeah, it's on, been a- on everything so far. Yeah, it's been a blast doing it. And everybody at Manifold has been super, super, you know, helpful, including yourself. And, you know, I think a lot of your expertise comes from the fact that you yourself has a have a podcast, too. So I know you're very much involved in the world of podcasting. So we'll get to the disruptors. I'd love to touch on that at some point during our chat and uh, kind of what you guys do over there. But to start, I think everyone would just love to hear your background um, and, and how you okay. yourself got to venture capital. So it's kind of a I mean, it's not a normal not a normal origin story. I, uh, I graduated from the University of Colorado with a marketing degree. While all my buddies went to work for Procter & Gamble or whatever, I, um, I decided to start my own company. I uh, met Matt Anardi, actually, um, right out of college. He was a couple years older than I was, but uh, we decided to start a basically a web development shop in Colorado Springs. And our clients were like a mausoleum, a site called Monkey Menus. It was like Grubhub, like pre-Grubhub. So some really, really great flagship accounts. But um, we did that for probably a year and a half or so. And um, I had grown up in Colorado and and was kind of looking for just to sort of change things up a little bit. So I, you know, I told him I wanted to kind of take a break. And I went to Seattle, thought I would, uh, I'd always wanted to live there. Um, I had some mentors in advertising, actually. So I thought I was going to try to get a job in advertising. But the, the hiring market, this was like, kind of the web, you know, 1.0 bubble had kind of burst. So people weren't really hiring. I ended up as a waiter at a seafood restaurant for six months. And then I went to Vegas for a bachelor party. And I met a girl who lived in New York City um, that was working at Ernst & Young and was getting her uh, her master's degree at NYU. And I'm a waiter. And I was like, I don't see any reason why this can't work out. And so I ended up, long story short, is like a, about three months after we met, I followed her to New York City. And I got a job as an account manager at a I guess what we would now call a startup, it was in the ed tech space. We were doing lead gen campaigns for universities. And uh, I had always had an aspiration to do design work, um, but I wasn't very good. So I um, sort of mentored underneath the design director at the time. And uh, so at night, I would do design projects and give it to them. And the, the deal was, you don't have to pay me. It's just sort of on top of what I'm doing. Um, you don't even have to show it to the client. I just want reps with like real projects and give me feedback. And so that's what we did. And eventually I got good because we, one of the nice things about that company was we had to do like 300, we had 300 clients. So we had to crank out 300 of these sites a year. And so it was a very good opportunity to kind of build, get reps from a design perspective in a very rapid period of time. And I was simultaneously learning like web standards, HTML, CSS, some light JavaScript, 
the apps were building cold fusion. So I learned cold fusion and, and he ended up, uh, he ended up leaving the organization and I ended up taking his job, uh, basically. And so I, about 12 months after I got there, became the, I didn't want to be called the design director. I wanted to be called the creative director. I think I wanted to be like Don Draper. And I thought that would somehow be meaningful to people. It turns out no one knows what a creative director does. So it doesn't, it doesn't help you at parties. But we, um, at around that time, and actually I had convinced Matt to come with me. So he joined initially in sales, and then he ended up kind of becoming effectively the CTO. He was the, v, I think he was the VP of tech. We had seen Friendster post MySpace pre-Facebook, and um, we thought, hey, what if we could build that for universities? And specifically um, in the, what we call um, matriculation window. So students were accepted to three different colleges. They're all basically the same. Our clients were not like the Harvards of the world. They were like William Patterson University or whatever. And so we thought, hey, if we could get them to make friends before they get to campus, would they be more inclined to go to that university? And that's what ended up happening. We, we built a product called UPeers and uh, that uh, ended up helping the company grow quite a bit. And we got acquired by a private equity fund called Halyard Capital that was doing um, a roll up in the ed tech space. They bought us to um, try to take what we were doing and, and do it in the for-profit space, so like the University of Phoenix's kind of thing for retention purposes. Did not work at all, but um, was interesting to work for private equity and see what that experience was like. And then after my kind of hold period, I guess, um, I, I was kind of getting antsy. I had moved to Chicago with that girl who now is my wife. And um, I had met Joe Dwyer. And uh, Joe was a, at the time he was a venture partner at OCA and was installed as the temporary CEO to do a turnaround or one of their investments um, that was in the hiring space. And he needed a, um, a head of product and he needed a CTO. And so I got to know Joe. Um, I raised my hand. He was like, it's a pay cut and we have about six months of runway and it's probably not going to work. And I was like, I'm in, like, let's, let's do it. And, uh, and more, even more crazy, I convinced Matt to come out. So he, he came out and he signed up for that that too. So, so that's how I got involved in Chicago tech. We built a product that was basically like an eHarmony for jobs in, and in a six month time, time frame, like we did a lot, like we, we acquired, I think 10,000 candidates. We had a hundred or so beta customers learned a lot about hiring. We had, we, you know, we had it to, we were, we would have needed to do, I think some pivoting around feature set and things like that. And unfortunately we ran out of time from a runway perspective. We didn't, we showed a lot of traction in my mind, um, like from a team perspective, our ability to build product, our ability to acquire customers, but we had not proven the thesis. And, and so they wound it down and we had a product team with no product. And that's what led to, at the time, Digital Intent, um, which was a, a professional services firm. It was basically a product shop building building stuff for startups at the time. And uh, But Joe, from the beginning, had this idea in his head from his time at OCA that there was an opportunity to provide cap, to basically be a value-added fund, provide cash, but also provide team. And how do you do that if you're not an Andreessen and you're not resourced like an Andreessen, you know, with, with the two and 20 model, you know, even a $20 million fund, like you don't actually have that, that 2% doesn't take you very far in terms of having a team. And so we, um, we basically used the professional services firm in order to build a team and to fund that team such that we could eventually start writing checks and be value added in that regard. And so that's it in a nutshell. That's how I got here. So I've been, I've been working with Matt for my, literally my entire career. And I've worked with Joe for at least half of it. So the three of us have been together for a long time. 
Yeah. And how would you describe the different value or the different unique skill sets that the three of you bring to Manifold? Because I think it's interesting and any founder who goes through the pitching process here, or, you know, is looking for capital for Manifold, will likely spend time with one of you or all three of you. And so I think people are often curious about the different skill sets that the three of you bring and how you think that has successfully sort of coalesced over the years. Yeah, it's changed. I mean, so we, we've we always been a partner model. We've never been comfortable having kind of one of us be the quote CEO or, or whatever. And, you know, who knows if that's the right decision or not. If we did have a CEO, it probably wouldn't be me. But from a skill set perspective, like when we, when we started the company, I mean, Joe was kind of the strategy guy. We were all a little bit Swiss Army-ish. So like, like Joe was a strategy guy who also knew how to build. And he had actually run a like a non-digital, but like a design firm back in the day. So he had kind of a round, well-rounded skill set. I was the I was the product person, but I also had a marketing background. I was a designer and I was like good enough to build really crappy versions of products. So like, and then Matt was ostensibly the tech guy, but he also had a good product strategy mindset. He joined that company in New York in a sales capacity. He was a VP of sales before he became CTO. So like he can sell. So like the three of us had, uh, we were all a little bit unicorny that way. And we didn't, start the company with super defined roles other than like Matt was going to handle tech. I was going to handle design. Joe was going to kind of handle like business strategy. And then like all of the other support functions, HR, culture, um, finance, you know, office management, like we, we all kind of did everything. So, um, so that's evolved over the years. I mean, when we, when the, when we started doing a lot more venture investing, you know, Joe took on the primary burden for fundraising uh, from LPs and uh, LP communication, as he as that took on a, a big chunk of his time, you know, Matt and I kind of stepped in to drive the advisory practice for a long period of time. Matt Matt took an, a deep interest in and became very good at um, sort of the the C, CFO role, for lack of a better word. You know, I did a lot of the hiring culture types of things. I did kind of marketing for us, and then when we started going into kind of um, the three operating units, like the studio, et cetera, we split up again, where I, I for, a, for a period of time, led the advisory practice. Joe effectively led ventures, Matt effectively led studio. That's changed in the last year or so. Um, we've brought in some really talented people on the advisory side that came from BC, BCG, PwC, et cetera, that are candidly a lot better at it than I am. And so they effectively run that practice now. And so I'm spending a lot more of my time on the studio, on you know, I'm working through culture stuff and how we take these three operating units and make them work well together. We've grown a ton. So like, how do we, how do we make sure things processes scale and things like that? So, you know, our, our roles have all kind of evolved um, over time, but I think probably underneath it is like, you know, you know, Google talk or Google talks about like the importance of trust in terms of kind of creating a productive work environment, things like that. Like I think the three of us sort of implicitly trust each other. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the circumstances would have to be for, for me to not work with Matt again and, and, and the same way with Joe. And uh, there may come a point in the future where that, that changes, but I mean, it's been 15, 20 years at this point. So we all, we all love each other. We all want what's best for each other. We all would kind of lay down on the sword, I think for each other. And so, and you know, we, we all sacrifice kind of in different ways. And so it is a lot like a marriage. We've had lots and lots of fights over the years, but you know, I think we have come out of it with a deep reservoir of trust, I would say. So. And a point you touched on, 
you talk about you know coalescing and bringing together these three operating lines under Manifold Group, which is effectively a venture holding company. And you know Joe talked at length about the sort of new Manifold and the rebrand. But I'm yep. curious for you, because you are so focused on culture and sort of internal development of the company, mm-hmm. are there case studies or companies, best practices that you've tried to study over the years? We mentioned Google, we mentioned Andreessen Horowitz, but I'm just curious if you think there's a model out there that that you would love Manifold to try and sort of to, to follow, or do you want it to be completely unique in its own thing? Kind of curious about how you feel like, or how you think about that. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of layers to it. So, you know, at the top, you've got sort of the vision of where you're trying to go. And I think that our vision is a little bit unique in terms of like, we're, we're an oddly shape. We're not just a venture fund. We're not just a professional services firm. And so trying, you know, you've seen the venture studio model, but I think we still are, we're in relatively uncharted territory. There's not a whole lot of people you can go talk to about how you, how you create a vision like that. And, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about right now is about like values. Like historically, we've had values around, you know, growth mindset, around being very outcomes focused, around competence and like always trying to kind of learn, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Humility in previous times has kind of been a a stated value. We've we've moved away from that because I think that, you know, some people thought we went too far on the humility side, but um, that's tough. And so just like a practical example, an advisory practice is kind of incentivized to, left unchecked, it's incentivized to put as many people as possible on a project, right? For as long as possible. And we fight that tension all the time. Our background as operators, our background as startup people is like, no, we want to we wanna conserve, conserve burn on behalf of our clients and make as much progress as we possibly can. But that's still a tension, right? The studio, like incubation, for example, like is right now and, and probably for the foreseeable future will continue to be a little bit of a skeleton crew, like on purpose. It's like, we want to make as much progress with as few people as possible. Um, so, so trying to navigate what values are shared across Manifold and then what values, uh, to what degree each operating unit should kind of have their own values, I think is kind of an important conversation. And that's one that we're, that we're candidly having right now. In terms of performance management, we've kind of borrowed best practices from a couple of different places. I would say like our performance management process now is, you know, one-on-ones, which you know, I think Andy Grove from Intel was the first one to coin that. Um, but just being really disciplined about one-on-ones with our team. Um, OKRs, which John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins implemented in Google, I think is probably the most famous example of it. So trying to have goals that cascade across the organization and across the operating units so that everybody sees how their contributions roll up. You know, the review the review process, coaching. So trying to train, train managers on coaching. We borrow a lot from Kim Scott, uh, who wrote uh, Radical Candor around that. So like, how do you have... How do you care about your team while also kind of having a high bar for results? So we, you know, we definitely have borrowed best practices, I think, from a bunch of different places. And and the goal there is like if we're we're trying to create a a uh, I think as Joe calls it a a a machine for perpetual value creation. Machine implies that you have parts, and those parts work in a repeatable way that is somewhat reliable. And so um, it can't all be hero ball and like personality driven. Like a lot of that stuff has to be abstracted outside of an individual person and documented in standard operating procedures. And, and I, I, I've come to believe that you can run even something like a professional services firm or a venture firm, wherever an individual project has so much variance between them, you can still, you can still document 80% of what you do and allow, and, and, and that allows that, that, that doesn't stifle creativity that, that provides rails and constraints that facilitate ideation and things like that because you're not having to reinvent the wheel every single time. So yeah, I don't know if that answers that. That's some of, those are some of the tools that we've been implementing. And, and we're always evaluating it. And I think 
you know, as you get into any organization, you find out that it's always a little bit of a mess. I think we've gotten a, a, a lot better. We used to, I think we probably were a lot more disorganized in the early days, but yeah. It's such a, I, it's always a fascinating topic to me because, you know, sometimes on the show, I'll speak to somebody who's from a VC fund that's been around for 20 and 25 years. And a lot of times it's from a, you know, three or four year old fund and the firsthand experience and the, the anecdotes are always that it's, it's somewhat similar to a startup. It's somewhat like raising a venture capital fund and, and getting mm-hmm. that off the ground has a lot of similarities to, to early stage companies. And you mentioned in particular the studio aspect of Manifold, mm-hmm. um, studio slash incubator team. I think that's one area that a lot of people are interested in when it comes to Manifold. I think it's really unique that we do have this sort of venture studio model attached to us. Could you talk to us a little bit about the organic growth of the studio and incubator component of Manifold and and when exactly you all decided, hey, we really see an opportunity here to create alpha, not just invest in it, but create alpha at these earliest of stages. How did that sort of come about in the life cycle of Manifold? Yeah, I mean, I think like everything, it's been a little bit, um, like you said, there wasn't, a, we didn't write down on a piece of paper, a master plan 10 years ago. It kind of happened organically. Part of it came from LPs. I mean, I think they they saw... When we made the manifold transition, part of that was to, and I, you can stop, I think Joe talked to, to, about some of this, but when we had digital intent, which was the consulting practice, and then we had founder equity, which was the venture investing um, group, we had a no fee model um, on purpose as a way to line incentives with investors. They all understood that the way we were able to do that was because we had this professional services firm. But, you know, we felt, I always felt schizophrenic going into any meeting. Like, am I, especially as someone who was playing a material role inside of advisory, like, am I selling you consulting services or are you trying to raise money from me? And like, who, who am I and what conversation are we having? It was always weird. And then I also always, I always had a little bit of, again, I, our investors always knew the model and didn't, didn't, it didn't bother them at all. I think they thought it was compelling, but every hour I spent on advisory wasn't directly helping my LPs. And so I wanted, I wanted to align those incentives closer too. So now manifold it's all under that one umbrella and our investors benefit regard from whether we're growing the advisory practice or whether we do another venture deal or whatever. But some of our LPs were like, hey, you know, you've, you th- if you think about this like on a risk continuum, you've got the consulting practice, which scales pretty linearly, and it's what allows you to have the team that can do all these other things. But you're probably ne- like, first of all, if you were to sell it, you'd sell it for like one to two times revenue. You're probably never going to sell it because then that takes away a huge advantage of this value add model. But, it, you know, it spins out cash flow and historically we've reinvested that. But, you know, theoretically that can flow up to LPs. On the venture side, you got your home run swings, very binary outcomes, we try to add value however we can, but, you know, and then there's an opportunity kind of in the middle for either partnering with founders that need a lot more help and, you know, taking on the additional risk and, you know, earning the additional allocation as a result of that. Um, or you've got this team that's done work for fee and as value add for, for your fund companies, but it's kind of surgical in nature. You know, they could be deployed to build your own stuff. And there's there's a bunch of directions that could theoretically go. Like you could build little businesses that cash flow in perpetuity and roll up to investors. You could build companies that maybe wouldn't have necessarily have venture scale, but because of the amount that you own, a much more modest exit would return the same to the LPs. That gets a little tricky if you think about like the long term. Or if our goal is to spin those things out, you know, to 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 wrap a to wrap a founder around it or a founding team around it and give it some capital and say, Hey, go, you know, go leave the nest. They probably need to fundraise. And so they, now they probably, 
still need to look a little bit more like a typical venture business. But but there's some optionality at a minimum that that we that a studio would give us. And it, it and I also think it gives the team more reps because again, you're a little bit beholden in advisory to the types of engagements that you get and what they what the client is needing. And then on the venture side, like we want to we want to help out as much as we can, but it's ultimately up to the founder how much help they want. And so um, this is a way for us to kind of control exploring spaces that we've been interested in, but the opportunity hasn't presented itself to give team members reps that they wouldn't be able to get organically um, and kind of manufacture those. And then to the degree that we find businesses that that we think have a legit chance of being successful, we have a lot of optionality in terms of how do you go for the home run swing? Do you go for the, there's, there's, there's tons of strategic acquirers that would pay 25 or $50 million for something. Right. Um, so, so it's, it's, I think it's, I think it's kind of in the middle of that risk continuum play. It's still early, super early. So, you know, the jury's out on, on, on how effective that will be, but it's been pretty fascinating to get in the weeds on that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and especially around kind of the, the idea of incubation. And I think that term can mean different things to, you know, different people. But I think from Manifold's perspective and from your perspective, part of your role, as I understand, is is to theoretically come up with uh, new potential commercially viable business ideas or products that turn into businesses. What is kind of your mental model or your process of elimination as ideas come? I, I guess people are always asking me, how, how does that process actually work where you're yeah. at a fund that is basically trying to create new businesses out of nothing. So what's your mental model? What's your, your strategy? Yeah. So there's a bunch of things that we do and we're actually working on, we're writing a series about it right now that kind of goes into a lot more detail and provides some of the tools and things like that. But we start with a thesis of some type right now. It's kind of loosely around like future of work type stuff. And, and there's a number of reasons for it. Spe- like standing up the processes matters a lot right now. Getting reps matters a lot right now. So like time to market is important. So all of the ideas that we're exploring right now one of the criteria is, can we build an MVP of it in low code? So things like healthcare is off the table because it has to be HIPAA compliant. Financial services is off the table just because of the level of complexity, blah, 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 blah. So a lot of it's around reps, but we want to be kind of pseudo thesis driven in the sense that we focus on an area for a period of time. We reserve the right to change that thesis, although we haven't yet. But then within that, uh, one of the things that was really important, there were two things that were really important to me. One, we know in venture that uh, in spite of our diligence, in spite of all of the brilliant people that you bring in on a team, like your hit rate isn't, you're not hitting, you're not hitting hundred percent or anything close to it. So if those, if those people can't do it, you know, the answer is to, to, to have a portfolio and to spread your bets across a bunch of things. And so I, the, the number of ideas mattered a lot. I, I talked to a lot of some studio models last year, um, some of whom were successful, some of them who failed. And one of the common threads was we didn't, in the failed ones, was we didn't have the same discipline on the studio side that we had on the venture side. In other words, like we look at 100 deals to, for every one that we do on the venture side. But then on the studio side, it was like, hey, this is a pet project of one of the GPs. And they just sort of pushed it through by force of will. And they didn't have any evidence that there was you know, customer desirability there, nothing resembling product market fit, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted to make sure we didn't do that. And so having a really robust defined stage gate process that I'm subject to and everybody else is subject to was important to me. And then creating tools to facilitate ideation at scale was really important to me. And I didn't believe that we could just sit down in a room and brainstorm our way to the number of ideas that one would need to do this effectively. And so, so that means a bunch of things. We obviously rely on secondary research, looking for trends and things like that. We do interviews. So like we'll do, we'll do interviews as part of validation too, but we're doing interviews at the top of the funnel too. So we'll talk to people 
who are domain experts. And I can use that term fairly loosely. Like domain expert doesn't have to be, I'm the most famous person in the world talking about this. It could just be, I, I live in that world on a day-to-day basis to try to understand trends that they see, problems that they continually have, a lot of like, uh, you know, customer journey mapping and things like that, looking for opportunities. We've done stuff like um, backcasting workshops. I don't remember who originally coined backcasting, but um, the idea is to kind of look at an inflection point 10 years into the future and try to back up and say like, hey, what what has to happen in order for that I think, to- I wanna say Mike Maples maybe at Floodgate. I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. So we've done, we've done um, backcasting workshops. We've done like 10 types of innovation, which came out of Doblin workshops. We do do some brainstorming types of things. A lot of times it's like we'll riff around around a problem statement um, and see what works there. We lean on our on our consultants because, you know, like someone has 20 years of healthcare experience and has worked across a whole bunch of initiatives. They're pretty, they, they have a good sense, I think, of the consistent problems that pop up in a given space. We listen to venture around theme, like trends, high-level trends they're seeing. We try to be very disciplined about having a firewall between specific deals and things like that. Um, we don't want any sort of, uh, and in fact, like it, it, one of the things is if we come up with an idea, venture one of the one of the stage gates is like, hey, have you have you been pitched this or or something close to it in the last X period of time? And if so, like we just categorically won't do it, even if we think it's a great idea. It's like we just want to avoid any any um, conflict of interest there. So. So we've created a whole bunch of tools and we're continuing to kind of work on it. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll accept ideas from anybody in the organization. We give them a pretty robust FAQ about like, hey, this is what you should expect if you do this. Because I think sometimes they think, oh, I own this idea. And it's like, well, no, that's not really how this works. If we build this thing, you know. Yeah. And then we kind of maintain those in a backlog if they don't fit the thesis currently because they might in the future. So, yeah. So that's that's kind of the process at a high level. I think we, we were looking at, we, we, we monitor our our funnel and the throughput. So like, I think we've, I think we're at 161 ideas that we've surfaced around that thesis. And then we have a stage gate process. So we, we evaluate it kind of, kind of rough at the very top. So like you create an idea, you have an idea, it's basically a problem statement and a solution and that's all it is. And then we just have kind of a quick gut. Like, what do you, do you like this? Do you get excited about this? And part of that is that's not the most like robust, but Part of that is um, the people voting are going to be the people that actually have to build it. And so I want them to be excited about it, right? So once we get through that, we write an opportunity memo. It looks a lot like venture memos that, that we create. They're a little bit different in the sense that um, you're not evaluating a team, obviously. You're not evaluating traction. So like some of the levers are a little bit different. Like we pay a lot more attention to like TAM, things like that. We review the memo. We score the memo. Um, and so we're, we're trying to assess them relative to each other. And one of the things we've been doing recently is kind of putting controls around um, like average score by person. Some people tend to score things high. Some people tend to score everything a little bit lower. So trying to normalize that too. And that's just, that, that just gives us a, qual, a, a quantitative number that we're, we're still making qualitative evaluations. But um, based on that, we decide which ones we want to move forward. We'll then do customer development and that's in three areas. Uh, we'll do a survey. Just, and we don't usually kill stuff from a survey because it's kind of a blunt instrument, but it's directionally helpful. We do customer interviews where we go out and actually talk to people. And then we'll do like an organic search analysis to see, is this going to be an educational sale or not? We're basically like assessing, is there existing demand? Because uh, if there's existing demand, the way you brand it and the way you position it is different. Now it's it's not, why does this category matter? But like, why us? Uh, and what is our unique value prop? If there isn't existing demand, then it's almost an educational sale and you're trying to sell on the category, right? So so we don't kill ideas based on that, but it definitely evaluates like some of the downstream stuff. And then we come back again based on that and say, hey, do we like this or not? We kill some of those. And then 
After that, we do a smoke test. So we'll create a landing page. Um, we'll drive traffic to it using paid acquisition, using cold outreach. And the idea there is that even when you do customer development, and we, there's things you can do to try to get closer to the truth, um, like asking for like a letter of intent and stuff like that. Like, you know, the rubber kind of hits the road there. But there's often a difference between like stated preferences, like what you say to me and, and revealed preferences, what you'll actually do when I build the thing. And so we want to control for that. And so smoke tests are great for that because we can like run a Facebook ad or a LinkedIn ad or do cold email. And just on the basis of like the headline benefit statement, are you interested enough to give me your email address? Just, you don't know anything else about the product. Like, is that compelling enough to you? And you don't know who I am. So you're not going to, you, you're not worried about offending me. We're not talking in person, all that kind of stuff. And so we do that. If it doesn't win there, then it dies again. Um, and so all of these are designed to kind of kill these things as quickly and as cheaply as we can. And then the ones that make it all the way, we then propose to the, the studio board, which right now is Joe, Matt and I, for MVP, we call it an MVP candidate. And then we, if it makes it past that, then we start building. So, And you've touched on it. And I, I think it's a really interesting point about the end goal for these ideas. And I guess this maybe is a broader conversation when you were looking around at studio incubator models and you mm -hmm. were seeing what the operating procedures were. I'm curious about the motivation. You know, is it a venture backable business or is it something that will just be cash flow generative generative? Uh, is it something that could potentially be acquired in a few years? I mean, how are you viewing these opportunities in the lens of what the ultimate kind of outcome is yeah. uh, and like what what is your sort of model around that yeah i mean i think ultimately I, i'll delineate between current state and, and ultimate goal so current state i've told those i told the team like candidly what i care the most about is reps and us getting reps and so if that means that you build a more modest idea so be it um that that's okay long term i think that they need to be they need to look like venture deals in the sense that you know again you're going to We've taken a slightly different approach than a lot of people. Like a lot of people will do like an EIR model where that person comes up with the idea, they own it from the very beginning. Others will do a model where they come up with the idea, uh, maybe they do a quick prototype, but they don't build it yet. And then they bring in somebody to kind of start it. We're taking it further, I think, than most do in terms of when they bring in that leader or that leadership team. And, you know, candidly, I think the jury's out on whether that's the right approach or not. Part of that is is honestly the team the team that we have is more robust than most of most of those folks could could realistically bring to bear but it's a huge question i mean like can you find a mercenary non-founding effectively early stage ceo and incentivize them appropriately and give them the resources they need to kind of build runway if they were not involved in idea generation and or validation but baked into that is the assumption that we're going to we are going to replace ourselves and give them a team and give them enough runway to make a certain amount of progress and get them out of the mothership, which means they have to raise, which means they probably are talking to venture, which means they need to look like venture type deals. So like the ideal state is going to be, these are the kinds of ideas where we build the MVP, we, we put a team around them, we give them whatever the number is, I think, you know, 250, 500 of, of, you know, quote, seed capital, maybe it's a convertible, I don't know, we'll see. And at the end of that, they will have made enough progress and demonstrated enough to be a compelling investment for our venture side. Like that would be the ideal state. And to show that we um, create deals that are attractive on an arm's length basis with a venture fund. I also think one of the, one of the things about getting outside capital, um, not just like from Manifold, but from ideally from others is 
it's really easy to drink your own Kool-Aid. And so I think that if to the degree that other savvy intelligent investors also agree that this is a compelling idea and is worth backing, that avoids us from kind of buying our own BS, so to speak. And I and then, you know, I mean, part of our model is Joe's kind of, you know, valuate, valuation model. So everything rolls up to kind of an aggregate valuation of assets that our LPs are investing in. Um, that will give me that will give me enough, you know, like a, a ton of conviction around like any sort of valuation that you put to one of these things. I, I assume that we discount any of these things super, super heavily until and unless we get, you know, third party validation for that as evidenced by writing a check. So and when you're going through the process of incubating these ideas, you mentioned you speak to people on the advisory side about problems and potential solutions and you know maybe finding subject matter experts. You mentioned speaking with the venture folks, hearing what they're actually seeing out in the market and validating or invalidating ideas through that. Is that kind of a moment for you as a founding partner where you realize, okay, like there is real operational leverage within Manifold. There is a real distinct differentiator that we have here. And it, it's truly unique because of our sort of three business lines. Was that some of the moments that you've had where you say to yourself, okay, this flywheel actually, you know, this seems like it really could work. It really feels like there's so much kind of synergies just from having this structure that we have. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, the, the, there's, the background of our advisory partners, um, there's the relationships that they have. I mean, like there's been there's been many ideas that we came up with that very quickly we could go kill or validate at least enough to make it to the next step. Like one of the problems with like verticalized solutions is it's really hard for you to have domain expertise across all these different areas. So it's like you're going to build a CRM for veterinarian clinics. Like I don't know, <laughs> you know. And so, but uh, our aggregate team almost always know somebody um, or knows a couple people. And so we can very quickly reach out and just be like, hey, is this a stupid idea? And then they'll probably say it's a stupid idea. And then we kill and we move on to the next the next idea. But um, so that's one of the flywheels. I think there's a lot of opportunities that come up in passing with advisory clients that they just realistically are never going to build because or, or, or pay to have built because they they don't have the monetary capital to pursue it. They don't have the political will to kind of push it through, but like, boy, wouldn't it be nice if that existed in the world, right? Um, so a lot of stuff kind of comes from that. You know, again, on the venture, like part of part of the job on the venture side is to be lots of ventures about reading and understanding broad trends. And eventually those, they, they, they turn them into think pieces or whatever. But uh, even outside of the, sp the specific deal flow they're looking at, I think that they have broad exposure to kind of what's going on in the world. And so they can surface problem statements and they can surface things that they're seeing that are not deal specific, um, that are super, super helpful. So yeah, I mean, I think I think we've seen it all over the place. I mean, it 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 makes our advisory people better at what they do because they're able to give uh, their advisory clients exposure to kind of the world of venture as well and what we're seeing. Like here's, you know, here's what you should be thinking about because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, startup activity in this particular domain. One of these people is going to take your lunch. You know, like you, you should be paying attention to that. Trying to teach them that how that world even operates. You know, speed how to measure, you measure things differently. Like this whole idea of like validated learning and like lean startup-y stuff. Like it's been around for 10, 15 years, but most organizations still don't think that way. I think it's helpful for venture. It's tricky with venture. You want to be careful about what you take from like an advisory client. Like you don't want to pursue a deal because they're going to be a customer. You, know, you want to make sure that, that that's not a customer. It's not an N of one, you know? So that that's a trap that you just got to be careful of and avoid. Uh, and, and then the same would obviously apply to studio, you know, we've learned 
you know, one of the things that happens with, uh, with, with venture is like, you'll, you'll see deals that are too early and they might want to kick it over to the acceleration side of the studio. But one of the things I keep telling them is like, your bar needs to be higher in order for it to, to pass acceleration or be passed over to acceleration. Like you need to not just think that it's a good opportunity. You think you need to think it's like a, you know, almost a cooler opportunity. I wish that we could put money into this, but it's too early or whatever it is because the opportunity cost is so much higher. Like we write a check on venture and then we're about, you know, we try to be as value added as we can, but it's not the same thing as staffing three or four people um, along with the founder to like help them out in a, in a super material way. So the opportunity cost is a lot higher on the acceleration side, but yeah, I mean, the synergies are kind of all over the place and it's been really, I think it's been really neat for the team. And I definitely think it makes us better at what we do hundred percent. And I think a lot of this conversation kind of harkens back, or at least reminds me of one of your podcast episodes, the 11 laws of product development, which I think aired three or four years ago, something like Boy. that. But I'm curious about the podcast disruptors had to give it a plug kind of curious about the genesis of the podcast, what motivated you to to start it and start to really get your kind of thoughts out there and and you do have a very strong kind of social media presence, uh, which I'd love to talk to you about, like in this day and age of venture capital, how important that is. But I'd love to start with the podcast. What was the motivation behind starting that? And what is the podcast all about? That's a good question. And the answer probably isn't what folks would expect. I, up until a year ago, I led our, I led our marketing team. And, and now, you know, thankfully we have someone who's much smarter than I am in there. But one of the things that was important to me was I, because I have a background as an operator, I always have felt a need to have my, my feet as close to the ground as possible and to have like be as close to the metal, so to speak. It's manifested, you know, I teach that the digital marketing course at Kellogg. It's meant to be a very hands-on practical course. And so again, like I, it's important to me that I, I don't just know what SEO is, but I know exactly how one goes about doing it as evidenced by repeated reps doing the work. And so even though I'm at the top of the stack, so to speak, like one of the, the, the patterns that I think folks see is, you know, I'm, I'm very willing slash too willing to jump in and get my hands dirty um, to this day. So the podcast was one of those examples. It was like, hey, the, you know, podcasts are becoming a lot more prominent. Where does this sit in one? Where should this sit in one's content uh, strategy? What are the brass tacks, like very tactical steps that one needs to do from an implementation perspective so that when our clients come, when, our event, when, a, when a fund company wants to get into it, we're able to give them much more helpful advice because we've actually done it ourselves. So that was actually the real reason why I started it. It turned out to be you know, a great way to kind of meet very fascinating people who are doing some interesting stuff. That's kind of why I did that. And that's there's lots of examples of it. I mean, honestly, like Twitter... It's probably where I'm most most active, but my Twitter account I don't think is like most venture Twitter accounts. Like I'm not, I have a lot of, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of them is like I don't, I I'm so operational still. Like I don't, I don't step up for air to read and think at the hundred thousand foot level the way that I think a lot of them, you know, the the the, the real established kind of traditional VCs think. So I don't candidly think I have strong opinions about a lot of that stuff. What I have strong opinions about are like very operational. Here's how you brass tacks do these kinds of things. And then candidly, like I actually care about what kind of what kind of a person I'm becoming and what kind of a person other people are becoming. And so like I, I anyway, my profile is very different, I think, than most people's profile. And it's but Twitter started off in the same way. It was like, I want to understand how this works. Instagram was the same way. Like I was doing I was doing Instagram live for a little while. I was on like I, our, our younger people were giving me a hard time. I was on Snapchat like. <laughs> 
but I know, I know that reels are where the algorithm is flowing attention right now. And I know here's how you create them. Like, it's just, you know, um, we got to get you on TikTok now. It sounds like, like, when do we get you on TikTok is the question. My, um, I don't know. My, uh, my, my confidence level on, on to, to TikTok is still, <laughs> it's such a weird space. I, 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 I actually was telling people, like I, I wrote a post a couple of years ago about the day you stop being curious is the day that your career dies. And like kind of this idea of like being the first to try new stuff and to try to really, to really legit understand it. And that has historically been what I've done with most things. Um, TikTok was probably the first one where I was <laughs> like, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. From a content creation perspective, right? I, I think it was interesting even just from a, but it, but it, it served other purposes. I mean, one of the things I, I routine, still to this day routinely do is I'll go into, you know, like Product Hunt or whatever, and I'll be, I'll download early versions of apps and I'm, I'm paying attention to patterns too. Like one of the things that TikTok did was they created an entirely algorithmically driven feed that didn't ask you any questions and just very quickly learned about you, which is pretty compelling. And like trying to get under the hood of that and understand how that works looking for patterns around onboarding. You know, one of the things I talk about in my class is that if you look at like every, every app has a retention curve goes, it doesn't go up into the right. It goes down into the right. You know, it doesn't take for some people or whatever it is. But one of the things you'll notice between the top ones and the bottom ones is that the drop for all of them happens pretty much in the beginning, either during first time use or during that first 30 days, let's say that's when people decide whether or not this product is for them or not. And so so much effort should go into your onboarding process, your first time user experience. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time, even now, doing teardowns for my own edification on patterns and things like that. I use it for my course. I use it for our startups when they ask. I you know, um, use it for the, the advisory stuff that we build, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, so the podcast is just one other, it's another manifestation of that. It was like, you know, and I learned, I learned a lot about how that works. I mean, it's, as you've probably seen, I mean, distribution's tough, right? Like discoverability, podcast discovery is a challenge. And so if you think it's going to be this thing, it's not, it's not, there are no, no great native levers for driving organic distribution. And so that means you got to do, you got to be really creative and you got to be really hustly in terms of how you kind of get the word out and you can actually build attention. But we've also learned that a listener is a much higher quality part of your ecosystem than somebody who reads your reads regular content. It's, 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 um, it's because it's auditory because they're listening, like they're listening to you for an hour and they're listening to your voice and the tone. And if they're following you, it's because they, you know, the the sound of your voice is almost pleasing to them or tolerable. Um, and so the impact that you can have in terms of shaping their perception, building affinity, things like that, like is, is so much higher than just about any other platform. So, yeah. And I'm, I, I, I mean, there's so much there that I think is so relevant to the natural, the state of venture capital today. And mm. the fact that it feels like in a lot of ways, uh, a podcast is almost table stakes for VCs today. You know, having a podcast attached to the brand is is yeah. something that so many try to do. Do you feel the same way as you look out at the ecosystem and you look at Manifold and you say, you know, what are some of the ways in which you think in the long run, you know, podcasts will evolve maybe from the VC perspective or from, do you see other enterprises, you know, advisory, you know, maybe companies that would come to us on a, in an advisory nature, you know, Fortune 5000, do you think they'll start to jump into the podcasting game as a, as a means to marketing? How do you see it sort of evolving in the future? 
So that's a good question. I mean, I think I think that there are huge opportunities to create some of those tools for organic distribution that don't exist right now. As you've probably seen, like reporting and getting like actionable data is really hard. They've gotten a lot more sophisticated on like the advertiser side. Like they're, you can start, they're starting to do programmatic and that kind of thing, which is which is huge. But we're so like we're so early in 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 terms of the maturity of of the platform that way. In terms of like whether it's table, I don't think anything's table stakes. I think it's like I think it's I would say do fewer things well is probably better than doing a bunch of things just because like you think that you're supposed to do it. I remember a guy named Elon Mosbacher who uh, was at Spy Hero for a long time. He was talking to my class and was talking about how, you know, the the, the growth story of Spy Hero and how one of their, they uh, they tried a lot of different channels and, and very few digital channels worked really well for them. So they were doing things like billboards. They were doing things um, like they had a, they had a guy with a, like a sign, a sandwich sign on one of the highway exits, right? And it actually was ROI positive for them. And then a week later, he heard from one of his friends that was at another startup, not in the parking space, that was like, how come we don't have a sign? I saw Spider as a as a sandwich guy. We need a sandwich guy. And it was like, the, the reason they did the sandwich was that they had a deep understanding of who their customer was and how their customer would be exposed to them, right? Um, everybody else was going for event parking, they were going for commuters, right? And that's how, that's kind of a huge reason why they won. So like, I don't believe in ever just saying, all right, well, we got to be on TikTok. We got to be on like, or whatever. You you should do the things that you are uniquely positioned to do well, um, that play to your strengths. So like, if you're great in front of the camera, YouTube is fantastic, right? YouTube is uh, the second largest search engine. It's amazing. It's an amazing platform, but not everybody's comfortable with that. Um, not everybody is comfortable with an interview interview type of format, right? So, you know, I, I wouldn't say anything is kind of required uh, or is table stakes. So as you've seen, the amount of work to produce a podcast is is pretty intense. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a lot more than writing an article, right? Like you've got to, the editing is, is non-trivial. <laughs> <laughs> it's really you <know>? not. <laughs> no. And then again, and the amount of work that you have to do to, do, to drive distribution is intense. Yeah. What I would say is, uh, you know, venture, I think, is one of these areas. I think there's a lot of areas where I think of I think of podcasts as a great, fantastic way to build a very close relationship to a relatively small number of users or customer potential customers, right? Like for every Tim Ferriss, there are many, many, many podcasts that have a reach of a hundred people or a thousand people or whatever it is. But if they're the right thousand people, that's great. Um, you know, so not necessarily be worrying about how many listeners you have and focusing your energy and making sure that they're the right type of listeners. I think from a distribution perspective, that means lots of cold outreach to people that are in your target market. And like, you're just giving them value. But again, because if they, if they listen to you and if they follow you, I think about it from like a sales or a BD perspective. One of the ideas in sales they talk about is the idea of the mere exposure effect, right? So I have to be exposed to you 21 times in order before I'm going to buy from you. And most people think that means I have to spam you via email 21 times, right? Or do phone calls or whatever it is. A fantastic way to build affinity is if I get if I can get you to listen to my podcast and subscribe. And every week or every two weeks or whatever your publishing cadence is, you're listening to my voice. You're, you're building familiarity with me, even if I'm not even sharing my thoughts. I mean, like, as you saw, like on the podcast that we do, like, I, I don't, I'm just asking them questions. Like, I don't, I'm not doing any thought leadership at all. But people come out of that and think, oh, Sean sure is smart. And I didn't say anything, right? It's a, I think it's a great way to build relation. I think it's a great networking tool, honestly. Like it's a great way for you to, as, as you've seen, you know? So I think there's a lot of use cases for it. We started experimenting with an internal podcast. I think that's another great way. You know, we have our all hands meetings. 
once a month, but boy, that's another great way to do like a deep dive in a particular space. So we'll do internal podcasts where it's all about, you know, our project with Kindred Healthcare or what we're doing inside a studio, or here's, here's what's going on with uh, Crafty, right? Um, interviewing the founder and like getting, getting that from them. And even like new team members, like, Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself, blah, 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 blah. So I think that's an underutilized use case for podcasts as well in terms of like building culture. So yeah, I mean, I, th I think that there's a ton of opportunity for it. I think it's just important to understand going in, like the level of efforts legit and driving distribution is way harder than it is for most other channels. You know. It's like everything else I feel like in life, it is so much blocking and tackling. And that's really the distribution part of it and the research part. And, and if I'd wanted to people ask me about starting one of my advice would always be, if you're going to start one, just make sure it's something that you would truly enjoy and love talking about for an hour, if, even if yeah. no one was listening, because um, right. no one might right. be at the very beginning. Um, and if you could see yourself still talking about that on a weekly or biweekly basis and a year from now, then that's, yeah, you should go for it. And I, I think, you know, closing up here and like looking at your career and just, I, I look at it as almost eclectic and the way you dive into new experiences and the way you've sort of taken on challenges um, instead of staying in one lane throughout the course of your career, I do feel like you've tried to jump into new experiences whenever they come up, even if you have very little, you know, prior kind of background expertise in whatever the you know area is. And I'm curious about if that has been, is it intentional with you for your career? And is it how you try and also live your life? Do you try and just jump into new experiences with that same kind of, you know, um, enthusiasm and, and seeking out opportunities in that way? Is that follow kind of your blueprint for life or how does that sort of, how is that organically uh, developed for you? It's a good question. I think I would say, well, I haven't really thought about it that way, but I, I think I, I think I, I do have a pattern of doing that. Uh, I guess I've had a pattern. The story, the story that resonates with me, like I, I, um, I did a, I did like a workshop thing, like a, like a life, life planning workshop thing, probably seven or eight years ago. And they had you like write down like notable events. And one of the things that, that came to my mind was when I was in first grade, my mom, I had a single mother growing up and, uh, they had um, one of those paper, those plane contests, right? Where the kids have to make the plane that flies the furthest. And my mom was so upset because all of the other kids had their, like, or most of the other kids had their dads. Their dads were helping them make like these styrofoam, like B-12 bomber things. And she just knew she couldn't help me. And so she was like upstairs, you know, crying because this was like really important. I'm very, I've always been very competitive. And so I wanted to win and um, she couldn't help me. And I ended up making a biplane out of like construction paper and paper clips. So it could not fly at all. I had to throw it off of the thing and it just collapsed. But it won most original because it was the only, it looked, it, it was like a Wright brother plane and no other plane looked like that. Um, that was a very early experience that taught me to take risk, taught me to sign up for stuff. So like I, you know, I ran for student body president in high school. I wasn't the most popular kid, but I made funny posters and I won. I did stand-up comedy in college. I coached flag football in college. I started a growth hacker meetup, just like on the train ride home. I just was like, let's start a meetup and like just did it. I, I think that I do have, I probably have a tendency to not worry about what other people think, maybe a little bit more than most or how this might fail. So that's probably good. I would say it's tempered with, I do have a very in, um, intentional process for what I would call like life building. I wrote down goals that I wanted to accomplish in my career when I was 22. I had a brief interlude where I, I had chopped eight of them down and uh, realized that like my life didn't, I wasn't materially happier necessarily. So I had a, a 
dark night of the soul where I had to figure out what that meant. And I emerged realizing like the goal, like the goal is, is like your rudder. And what actually matters is like how I spend my day kind of moving towards it. Um, so I don't, I'm not constantly obsessing over the goal, but I do have a goal. So what it does is it provides you direction and it provides you like motive power, but I'm not as worried about the outcome. It's almost like a balloon. You know, I, I sit down and I try to do my work and I try to be as focused as I can. And then I let it go as a balloon. And um, that's what I try to do. I mean, I, I, I deal with anxiety and stress like everybody, but, um, but yeah, like I, and I've applied that in my life. I was very disciplined about, um, I believe a life can be architected and can be built in a very deliberate way. And, uh, so I've made, that means there's value decisions that we've made. You know, when we started DI, I told those guys, like, I, I've done the startup meat grinder a couple of times. Like I will, I, I believe it is possible through intelligent system design and other kind of levers to build a business that does not require you um, to mow yourself into the ground. Um, I believe it is possible. And I have young kids now. And if I build a successful business and I don't know my kids, I failed. And so I'm going to do my best to construct, you know, a, a business that is able to where I can go and the business keeps running. And, you know, the downside to that is that sometimes people are like, you know, you at worst you worry as someone like, like me who got a lot of um, self-validation out of like creating stuff. It's, it's, it feels dangerous, you know, like you feel like you're going to be Roger Sterling from Mad Men and like, they're like, what, what exactly does he do? You love but, Mad uh, Men. I, that's, that's the number one lesson I've taken away from this. I guess I so. Like yeah. You, yeah. Like you love Mad show. Men. <laughs> it was a great show. It was a great show. Sorry um, not to interrupt. No, but yeah. So I, I, and so how that manifests now, like one of the things is um, getting things done is a book uh, that I started, I read for the first time 10, 15 years ago, and I reread it every single year. I've done trainings that you've seen, I think, for the team on how to do it. And the reason why is um, if you can, like so much of your like psychic RAM is devoted to things that you've made implicit agreements about that you haven't clarified and gotten out of your head. And to the degree that you can do that, you can elevate and you can start to have higher level conversations and think higher level thoughts. And so being very disciplined about the day-to-day of my life and like, what are all my open loops and what am I moving on? Different people in the organization might disagree and think that I'm a total mess, but I think they would probably think that if I make an agreement to do something, I'm going to follow through on it. What that allows me to do is like architect experiences. I think I, I think that the way that one does the, hap, the office happy hour matters. Like it was important to me. I'm going to be the bartender, right? Like that was important to me that they see, you know, one of the, I, just another manifestation of like the founders are not above anybody else in the organization. Like that mattered to me. What, you know, I organize a men's camping trip. I got, I got 20, well, not 20. There's probably 15 dads that are going this year and like 36 kids, right? And like, how do you how do you design that? Internally, we're having conversations around like, if you think about the hiring process, how do you, how do you architect a hiring process that is almost like a movie script that is repeatable so that when people come in, they're like, wow, that's a different place. Onboarding, the same type of thing. How do you create systems um, that allow you to architect really meaningful, really memorable experiences for your friends, for your wife, for your kids, for your business partners, for your team, for clients. It makes life a lot more fun and a lot more interesting. And it's like, if you have to do the work anyway of like, why not do the best possible version of it? You know? So, so yeah, I think it's kind of a combination of like spontaneity coupled with like pretty disciplined systems that kind of allow the headspace to try to think about those kinds of things. So, yeah, and I love that we were able to cover this topic because you know I think you 
as people will find out after the show, if they follow you on Twitter, you are a very philosophical follow, I would say. I think you do have a lot of really interesting threads that you like to pull on via your social media. And I, I also have to attest that you made a mean old fashioned the night of that uh, happy hour. So I think your bartending skills are top notch. Um, so that's just another that's just another tool on the tool belt. Well, and I don't want to I don't want to like if you go on my like Twitter profile, for example, like I've had I've had many, many times where I feel a little bit of a, like a charlatan when I do that kind of stuff. I've asked people who matter to me and who I trust should I be doing that? Like, I feel a little bit like you feel a little bit of shame, uh, honestly, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. And they're like, no, man, like you, like it, I have been told enough times from enough people that, that care about me. It, it is legitimately valuable for people. Please keep doing it. They've pointed out like areas and where it's actually made an impact. So it's like, it is very different than what most people do, which is like, I want to try to be I want you to think that I'm as I'm the smartest person in the room. And I, I it's I I hope that's not the approach that I communicate to people, but like, I care about startups. I care about venture. I want to be good at both. I care a lot more about like who you are and who you're becoming as a person. And I think that's like, it's, that is a choice that one makes and it's like a, a million incremental little decisions. And so that's kind of where my mind tends to gravitate. And it's, I don't know, it probably doesn't help accomplish business objectives. Maybe, maybe it's helpful in terms of acquiring team, but I, I don't know, but I don't want people to like look at mine and think of it as a, as a model for anything. What I would say though, is like, just start. Like the worst thing that's going to happen is nobody's going to see it, which isn't that big of a deal. And, and, you know, we've had, we've gotten clients from it. We've gotten speaking gigs from it. We've gotten, I don't know if we've gotten LPs from it, but uh, we've gotten team from it. So, I mean, it, it is uh, having a platform is incredibly valuable. So as you've seen yourself, so. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, for me personally, uh, I genuinely truly get a lot out of your tweets and i think that's probably the case for most people that read them um and also those who know you kind of know that it, they align with sort of your personality and, and who you are and who you show up to work as so uh, i think it's all very much genuine and i think i think people get a lot out of it so you know sean i want to thank you so much for coming on the show um i'm so happy we were finally able to do this if people want to follow you on twitter and and you know follow the disruptors podcast where can they go uh well the disruptors is is on any podcast platform we we need we need to do some new episodes honestly um and then uh and twitter is intentionally most platforms it's intentionally and uh yeah i mean reach out if people have questions or they want to know more about what we're doing um on the studio side i'm happy to share what we're doing if you're looking to grow your company, you know, reach out and I'll put you in touch with the people that that'll help you with that. And then, uh, yeah, if you've been listening and you have a startup that you want to pitch, obviously like Matt is part of the team and, and reach out to him. So, but, uh, no, this was really fun again, you know, congrats on everything that you've been doing with this. I think it's been really impressive to see what you've managed to build in a pretty brief period of time with the podcast and the caliber of people that you've brought in. I appreciate you making an exception uh, for me, bringing in a B player and, uh, no, it's been fun. It's been super fun to, to watch uh, from pseudo afar. And uh, yeah, man, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. John, thank you so much. And and for everybody who may not know, Sean was one of the first people that helped me uh, get the podcast off the ground. I went to him multiple times, bugging him with questions about the process. So Sean, thank you for all your help and for being a friend of the show. And we can't wait to have you on again in the future. Sounds good, man. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care.